Well, before we begin this morning, there was an announcement that was missed, uh, and, and that's just simply this. Bob Donaldson, if you are familiar with that, who that is, it's Julie's dad, will be here on next Sunday as we're doing a, an installation service for me, which feels odd that I'm announcing it, but... I, I, I have yet to figure out if he skipped it on purpose to sort of crossing his fingers and hoping that I'll be gone by then. Um, where is Chris? I don't know where he is, but I told him, uh, there he is. He sent out a text to Julie and I saying, I forgot this. I said, don't worry, I'm already formulating jokes on your behalf. Anyway, so that's next week, but Don, uh, Bob will be here to do the message, and Hank will be part of the service as we do some, it, it's sort of a commitment service, me to you, you to me, and so be here for that. It'll be a, a great time as we gather and hear from Bob and, and talk about what that looks like, but let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here. Lord, as I look around this room, it is appears that many of us were able to be with family this weekend, and I thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you, Father, for your incredible love for us. Use your word this morning. Use your spirit in our lives to show us who you are more clearly. Allow us to be men and women whose hearts and lives long to follow you. We do love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You ever had one of those moments as a kid or, or maybe as an adult, you've watched your kids take your glasses and put them on and by putting them on, obviously they smudge them all over and it takes about two days to get them actually clean from what your kids do to them, right? But when I was little, I would take glasses and I would put them on because I wanted to see what this was like. And I never could see well. I never could figure out how people could look through those glasses and, and see something with any level of clarity. Not really the words I would have put to it when I was six. But you know what I mean. We put those on and everything's blurry. Or you go to the eye doctor and they, they do this whole, which is better, one or two? And you're like, they're both terrible. I don't know what you're talking about. And you, you have those times where it's just not clear. We also have times, I remember when I got glasses I had these incredible headache issues for a while, and Alice and I used to go on walks all the time. I'd put my sunglasses on, and I finally went to the eye doctor, and he gave me prescription sunglasses. And by gave me, I mean made me pay a lot of money for prescription sunglasses. I didn't know that prescription sunglasses were far more expensive than regular glasses. At least the ones that I got were. I don't know. But I put those on and we went for a walk and all of a sudden I realized when I looked way out there at the trees, I could see leaves on trees instead of sort of globs of trees. And all of a sudden things were clear to me. We have in this passage, we have an opportunity to see what is going to make things clear to us for us, what has to be done, sort of like getting glasses to make it so that we can see the scripture and life and truth 
clearly and rightly. It's really an amazing opportunity to be reminded that this again is not about you and I. We're going to centralize Christ in this, right? It's going to end up decentralizing us, which is what our goal is. As much as it's not a fun goal, it's a right goal. It doesn't feel nice, but when we actually find that Christ is center and we are decentralized, we find that while it might not be enjoyable, an enjoyable process, it's an amazing result. So let's read this. We're out of verses 3 to 14. We're in verses 15 to 23 of Ephesians chapter 1. Again, this is Paul writing to the believers in Ephesus. And he says this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all and if you notice there's an odd thing in this passage And actually, the English translations make it easier than the Greek, and that is, in English, we have exactly two sentences from verses 15 to 23. One of those sentences runs from verse 15 to verse 21, but in the Greek, it runs all the way to verse 23. Paul, if you ever get a chance to study his actual writing, his Greek writing, is incredibly hard to follow because he hates periods, he hates sentences, and he tries to write it all in one big chunk. And that's what we have here. It Really, that's on purpose, because it, it puts all the focus of that whole sentence on one thing. In this case, it's what goes on in the middle, the having the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we could understand God's riches and the hope that we have, and understand the power that he has in having raised Christ from the dead and where he put him. It's all centered on that component of this passage in what happens to us when we recognize his lordship, his position, and how it impacts us. It's important to recognize that Paul starts this with a statement that is, convicting at least. And he says, for this reason, the reason I'm about to state, he says, I have, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Paul did not live in Ephesus at this point in time. And somehow the faith and the hope that these people had, or the faith and the love rather that these people had, was something that he heard about somewhere else. 
So the simple question that we have to ask that isn't even the point of the message this morning, the simple question we have to ask is, is our faith and the love that we show toward the other saints in this room, in this town, the people around us, is that something that people would hear about? Or is it just something that's there, we say is there, and nobody else ever sees it? Because if nobody ever saw the faith, if nobody ever saw the love, Paul would never have heard about it while he was on his travels. I had an opportunity to study a lot this week on this passage, and and that just continued to stand out to me. Does my love for people, is that something that other people would see, recognize, and hear about, or tell other people about, oh, that guy was so kind and helpful? Uh, Not kind in the sense that we allow anything and we, we don't say anything is wrong. Not that kind of kind. The kind of kind that values somebody else and says, I want to aid you. I want to help you. Or would they look at me and say, eh, I guess he didn't make a particular problem, right? Those are different things. Would they hear about the faith that I have or that we have as they look at this body of people, this local gathering of the body of Christ? Would they see faith or would they see sort of self-reliance? Those are some of the questions that we could ask. And that's only the beginning of the passage, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, what? He gives thanks to God for it, right? That the God of our Lord Jesus, I I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may do something. So Paul is praying because of their faith, because of their love, that God would do something even more in them, take them further than they even were. And what does he pray that God would do? He prays that God would give them something and that something would happen because of this in our hearts. That God would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That God would give the spirit of revelation to the people. Not This is referencing the Holy Spirit, right? It's not referencing the initial getting of the Holy Spirit, but it's the that God would give them a greater understanding of Scripture, right? We go back to John chapter 14. It's verse 26. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have told you. He will teach you all things. All things what? About Jesus. They're not talking about physics or chemistry. He's talking about knowledge of Christ, that the Holy Spirit would give that to particularly the apostles, but by extension, all of us who have that spirit in us, that we would be given revelation, not revelation in the sense that we're getting scripture, but the understanding of scripture, right? He's gonna gonna make that clear. You and I are not adding to this. 
We're not gaining revelation from Jesus. We're not gaining the Holy Spirit's revelation to people where we write inspired scriptures. That's not what we have. But he makes clear to us all the things that he has said, all the things that he is through scripture. And he uses his spirit to make that clear to us. Note, pay attention to the fact that we are already stating implicitly a dependence on the Holy Spirit to bring us to that end. Not a dependence on our own efforts, thoughts, abilities, but a dependence on the Spirit to bring us to a revelation of Christ. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't learn to study Scripture better than you already know. I should continue to learn to study Scripture better than I already know. Why? Because there are things that in learning more about Scripture, we understand it more deeply. But if we want it to come alive and be the living Word of God that it is, then we must ask the one who inspired it, the one who empowers it to empower it and inspire it, or empower it in our lives and make it clear to us what he means. But it goes on even further than that, right? He says that, that he was going to give us the... Says that, says that he's remembering them in their prayers that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, right? And of revelation. But in what? In the knowledge of Jesus. So as, as we get this spirit of revelation, as the Holy Spirit makes clear to us scripture, what should we be seeing and knowing? Jesus Christ. If we look at scripture and see anything else, if we look at scripture and see good moral platitudes, which are good, if we look at scripture and see nice ways to live and good ways to engage with our culture, but what we're not seeing is Jesus, then we have missed the point. Because the point of scripture is not our culture, the point of scripture is not our nicety. The point of scripture is not our morality. All of those things come out of Christ, who is the point of scripture. So if we want the spirit of revelation, if we want this, this enlightened eyes that Paul is going to speak of, we must recognize that it starts by knowing Jesus. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him. Seeing him as the center point of scripture so that when we come here, we say, how can I know Christ more? One of the, one of the ways to do Bible study uh, consists of a multitude of different questions. One of those being just, what is the key words? What's weird in the passage? But also, what does it teach us about Jesus? And that becomes one of the central questions that we ask as we study scripture. What does it teach us about Jesus? Why? So that we intentionally take our focus and put it right there on Christ. It doesn't matter if you're studying Genesis, Deuteronomy, Revelation, Matthew. It doesn't matter which book of the Bible we look at and study. We ask, what does it teach us about Jesus? But how often do we actually seek to know more about him? Now, sometimes those questions are asked in a very um, passive-aggressive, you're terrible, how often are you actually doing this sort of way? Uh, that is not what I mean by it. 
If I want to be aggressive, I will be aggressive. I don't really like passive and aggressive. I just want to be aggressive. But really, what we, what we need to ask is not me asking you a question of how good or bad are you at this. It's really a question that we each step back, back and ask of ourselves. How often am I looking at Scripture, going through life, seeking to know Christ more? Or how often am I going through life seeking to do well and succeed Right? We can gain success and not Christ. We can gain Christ and not earthly success. And we have a, a potential, I have a potential of putting my focus on success or doing well or working hard or whatever it is instead of knowing Christ. And if Paul is asking for them to have a spirit that reveals Christ to them, that must be the focus of what we are doing as well. So God gives them, they can't gain it on their own, the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Christ, right? Pointing to the knowledge of Christ. Also, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, meaning that it's done to you. This is getting a pair of glasses from somebody else that works perfectly to make it clear. This isn't going out and acquiring through your own skill and hard work all that you need in order to make this happen. This is coming before the Lord and saying, God, I can't do this. I'm not strong enough or smart enough or good enough. I can't see clearly enough. I need you to work in me that which causes me to know you, that which causes me to follow you, to honor you, to glorify you. And then we find that in our utter dependence on Christ, we find that he opens these things to us. Why? Because our goal is to see and know and honor him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you are called. So what is the hope to which we are called? Salvation, right? That's our hope. That's our present hope. That's our future hope. And when the scripture speaks of hope, it doesn't speak of this, oh, I really, I really hope that that happens in the future. It's the, I know the result. And my hope is in the result that Christ wins and gives us salvation and gives us redemption and gives us life in him. That's the hope. So that now we don't have to be slaves to sin any longer. If we were to flip back to Romans chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, which that's a fun statement, right? We were slaves to sin when we were born in sin. And, and we lived that way until we put our hope in Christ, until we put our belief in him and we were set free from the slavery. That's what we're told. People say, oh, you're set free from slavery. You're actually not. You're set, set free from the slavery that brings death because that's all that sin will bring. He says it in the next verse, for the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death, right? But we become instead slaves of God, not just servants of God, not followers of Jesus, slaves of God. And in case we feel like that puts us at a disadvantage, Almost all of the writers of the epistles, the apostles, refer to themselves as doulos, bondservants 
or slaves of Jesus. That's where they saw themselves. That's what they were. So when Paul writes here that we become not slaves to sin, but slaves of God, that means we're a slave to that which gives us life. Right? That's a good thing to be enslaved to. To the life-giving, non-death world instead of a slave to that which brings only death, James writes in James chapter 1. But Paul goes even further. In chapter 8, he says, verses 1 and 2, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. We are free. Just not free to do whatever we want. We're free to follow Jesus. We're free to not sin. But we're not free to ignore him. Avoid him. Think that we are in control, not he. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The hope of future life, right? But also the hope of now not being slaves to sin, to that which brings us death. That he may enlighten your hearts to what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. That's the inheritance that we have with Christ. Not just the moment where we are no longer condemned to die, no longer condemned to punishment for our sins, but the inheritance that gives us a future position with Jesus. A guaranteed life with him. Right? It's not just that we don't get punished, we do get life. That's the inheritance. And to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Toward us who believe. This is not the greatness of his power toward everybody. That greatness of power is described in other places where he is the final judge, where he is the one who is in control. Where back in chapter 1, verses 11, or 11 and on, says in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Right? That is the greatness of his power toward everyone. But the greatness of his power toward us who believe is that he raised Christ from the dead, a foolish notion from all practical human perspective. But the power of God displayed in the resurrection of Christ so that his son, who took on all of the weight of the wrath of God, would come back to life, destroying death, destroying or paying God's wrath so that we could live forever with him so that we wouldn't have to pay that. We would know the greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above. Far above what? So, so God raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand, which is a position of power, and put what? Put him above what? All rule and authority and power and dominion. And if that wording sounds familiar, it should, especially if you've been reading Ephesians with us. So the goal, the desire, is that we would all read all of Ephesians every week or listen to it in your car so that when we gather on Sunday to talk about Ephesians, we would be in a place where we've already thought about it, wrestled with it, understood the letter as a whole, and then we start looking at it in particulars, right? Right? This, this wording, 
of Ephesians 1, verses 21. Far above all, rule and authority and power and dominion sounds an awful lot like chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And you probably are familiar with this. Verse 10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities against the cosmic powers over this darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle, Paul says, is not against the things that are here on earth, but the spiritual things that are ultimately at war for the life and death of the souls of people. And Jesus is set far above those things. Not just above, far above those things. And he's above every name that is named, not only now in this age, but in the one to come. There is not a point in time where something will have a name that rivals that of Christ. So that when his name is put on something as a stamp of approval, as the power behind it, it will be a thing that has more power than any other name that could be given to it. Not just by a little, but by a lot. And he has put all things under his feet and has put him as head over the church. God has put not just the idea that Christ is above, but so far above that he stands on top of all of this other drivel that can't possibly compare to his greatness and his power, which is all of the nuclear incredible power that we can know on earth. And Christ stands on that like we would stand on a leaf as we walk through the woods, not even thinking about the fact that there's this millimeter thick thing holding us off of the dirt. He just, it's under his feet, beneath his even position to think about. And that God gave him as head over all the things over all things to the church. Christ is our head. Ephesians 5.23 says that he is the head, we are the body. Notice there are aspects of the body that you can lose and still be okay. Your head isn't one of those, right? If I lose my pinky, which, which the whole idea out of 1 Corinthians 12 about if one member of the body hurts, the whole body hurts, never was more clear to me than when I went through my finger issues. A great story for a different time, but, but never had my whole body hurt because a stupid little pinky, actually just one bone in the pinky hurt so bad. The whole body hurt. But I can lose the pinky. And I can even have a better golf game because of it. Right? If I lose my head, not so much. Christ is the head. We are the body. We are the thing which follows that. I was in taekwondo at one point. My my boys were in that, so I was in it with them. And I had to always go against Steve McQueen. And and I know it sounds like I'm just making that up. That really was his name. And Steve is a really good friend of mine. He's like a fourth degree black belt. He's six foot three, about 220 pounds. And he always wanted to fight against me. And I'm pretty sure I cried a little. He's terrifying. He's also a really good friend of mine. So I wasn't actually afraid. At least I tell myself that. 
But when Steve, when we would fight, when we would spar, his goal was always to control your head. And if he could control my head, he could make me go wherever I wanted to. Why? Because I can't go where the head isn't. Right? And I know that sounds silly, but where Christ, when Christ is the head of the body, then we go to where Christ is. There's nowhere else that we can go. We can't follow something else because he is the head. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us this. Verses 19, it's really verse 24, but it's really verses 19 through 34, but it's really all of chapter 6. But it's really all of Matthew. It's really all of the New Testament, right? And the Old. That's what it is. But here's what it says. Verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and something. The word is mammon. Some Bibles have that because it's a word that doesn't really translate to a particular thing for us. But mammon is really anything that we can acquire possession of, whether that's money or power or reputation, intelligence, position. It doesn't matter what it is. If you can grab hold of it for yourself, you can't serve chasing that and chasing Jesus. John goes so far in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 to say that you can either love the world or love God, but if you love the world, you prove you hate God. Listen to that. You can either love the world or you can love God, but if you love the world, you prove you hate God. That's convicting. Why? Because I like to think of myself as a capable, able person. I like to think of myself as somebody who can accomplish things. I'm driven, I'm, I'm skilled, I can do certain things. I want to succeed, I want to do well. And if that's my goal, then I fail before I start. That's tough. I can't serve God and the desire of possessions and acquisition of power on earth. I can either love God or I can love the world, but I can't do both. If Christ is our head, if we chase something else, that's really saying that thing is our head. It's really saying that thing is our controller. That thing is in power over us. We can't do both. It must be Christ. We must choose we must choose to ask the Holy Spirit to convict us, direct us, empower us, enable us to be dependent on him, to make the scriptures come alive, to depend, be dependent on him, to recognize that our hearts need to be enlightened so that we can understand the hope that we have, so that we can understand the inheritance that we have, so that we can understand the actual position of Jesus Christ, not just in the world, but in our own lives. That's what we must do. And then live that out, whether we're in this building or somewhere else. Whether we're driving down the road and somebody cuts us off, or whether we're hanging out at home with our families or at work with our coworkers or at a restaurant with friends, we live out that truth all the time. Let's pray.
Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to have our hearts enlightened to see and know you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to have your spirit give us only that which your spirit can give us. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to work in our hearts to teach us more and more of who you are. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for giving us your son. We thank you, Father, for all that you are, the power and position that you hold. It's the name, it, it is in the name, the amazing and holy and powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.